Welcome to Music History Monday for January 3rd, 2022. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is The Fifth Beetle. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the birth on January 3rd, 1926, 96 years ago today, of the English record producer, arranger, conductor, composer, audio engineer, and musician, Sir George Martin, the putative fifth Beatle. Martin produced 13 albums and 22 singles for the Beatles between 1962 and 1970. All told, it's a body of work that adds up to less than 10 hours of music. But here's a case where numbers do not tell the story, because thanks to George Martin, those nine hours plus of recorded music revolutionized the world of popular music. Today's post will observe just how George Martin became the Beatles' record producer. Tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post will explore the impact Martin had on the Beatles' recordings and what is, in my humble opinion, his masterwork, the Love Album of 2006. But first, a dinner conversation that I believe you will find most interesting. What makes a song last? My neighbor across the street is a big, smart, outspoken man named John McGlennan. I love John. He came to the United States from Dublin, Ireland in 1992 at the age of 24, here to make his fame and fortune. He has done both. He founded One Union Recording Studios in San Francisco in 1994 and has created nothing short of an empire, one that serves the movie, television, popular music, and advertising industries at the highest levels. John is a good friend of my great friend, Sandy Wilson, the cellist of the Alexander String Quartet. Some three or four or five years ago, oh my goodness, there's nothing worse than a historian who has lost track of time. Suffice it that it was before the freaking pandemic. John, Sandy, and I, and a few others, were having dinner together at John's house. We got into a discussion as to what classic pop rock songs would last, what songs would still be performed 50 years from now. Everybody had an opinion. I sat back and listened. When the time came for me to contribute my two fennigs, I decided, as is my irksome want, to reframe the conversation. I rhetorically asked, what attribute or attributes makes any body of music lasting? I then answered my own question. A song or symphony or string quartet, etc., lasts if it can be performed and reinterpreted by musicians other than its creators. 
What this means in terms of popular song is that in order to last, a particular song must have, musically, a high enough melodic profile and an interesting enough harmonic underpinning to be covered, to be performed in a variety of settings and contexts. For example, the songs of the great American songbook. To those dinner companions who had been extolling the timeless nature of the music of the Rolling Stones, I asked, have you ever heard a satisfactory cover of Satisfaction? The uniform answer was no, because Satisfaction, and indeed the great body of the Rolling Stones music, is, from a purely musical point of view, rather poverty-stricken. It is the unique sound and personality of the Rolling Stones themselves that sells their music, and not the music alone. So, based upon my criteria, can a song be convincingly performed by someone other than its creator? Will satisfaction last beyond its original recording? No. How about Carol King's You've Got a Friend? 1971, You've Got a Yes. Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze, 1967, Nope. Joni Mitchell's The Circle Game, 1967, Yup. Steppenwolf's Born to be Wild, 1968, Nix. Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind, 1962, But of course. Led Zeppelin's A Whole Lot of Love, 1969? No way. Stephen Sondheim's Send in the Clowns from A Little Night Music, 1973? You betcha. We see a trend emerging here. Very generally, but not inaccurately speaking, the songs created by and for hard rockers are characterized, one, principally by their beat, and two, by the musical personalities of the rockers themselves and not by their melodic and harmonic content. Whereas the songs of folk, folk rock, pop, and theater composers are, by their nature, driven by their melodies and harmonies. Back finally to our little dinner get-together. This is where I finally volunteered my opinion that if we really want to identify rock and rollers who created a body of songs that will last, we need look no further than the Beatles, whose mature songs owed more to the traditions of folk pop and the English music hall than to hard rock. Oh my goodness, an uproar ensued. Okay. It only came from one person, our host, but John is big enough and loud enough to create a general uproar all by himself. George Martin, he howled. It was all their producer, George Martin. As a studio owner and producer himself, my neighbor John McGlennan was, is, sensitive to the role played by John Martin in creating the Beatles' recorded legacy. To my great surprise, Sandy Wilson, the cellist, agreed with John, although I think he was just being a good guest. Whatever, their regard for George Martin is an indication 
of just how important Martin was to creating the recorded sound of the Beatles and why he is often referred to as being the fifth Beatle. George Martin's real or perceived importance to the Beatles notwithstanding, my friends John McLennan and Sandy Wilson were wrong, wronger, wrongest, and I told them so as gently but as firmly as I could. You see, George Martin was responsible for the Beatles' recordings and not their actual music. Please, let's establish the following up front. George Martin had little to nothing to do with the actual harmonic, melodic, or literary content of the Beatles' songs. Paul McCartney wrote, among other great songs, Hey Jude, Here, There, and Everywhere, Yesterday, Let It Be, Eleanor Rigby, Penny Lane, and Get Back. John Lennon wrote, among other great songs, Strawberry Fields Forever, I Am the Walrus, Revolution, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and Norwegian Wood. George Harrison wrote, among other great songs, Here Comes the Sun, Something, and While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Again, George Martin's great contribution was not in writing the songs, but rather in recording them. So having established that it was Paul McCartney, John Lennon, and George Harrison that created the Beatles' songs, songs that, based on my criteria, will live long and prosper, let us now give Mr. Martin his due as the producer of the Beatles' recorded legacy. Brief Biography George Martin was born in London on January 3, 1926, and died at his home in Wiltshire, England, on March 8, 2016, at the age of 90. He played piano as a child and, in his own words, quote, had fantasies about being the next Rachmaninoff, unquote. After a stint in the Royal Navy during World War II, Martin attended the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London from 1947 to 1950, where he studied piano, oboe, composition, and conducting. From there, it was on to the BBC's Classical Division, and then to the English music industry giant, EMI, Electric and Musical Industries. The Beatles biographer, Bob Spitz, described George Martin this way, quote, even before he became famous, George Martin had the aura. He was a tall man, six foot two inches, with a fine head of thick, wavy, swept back hair and dramatic features, a wide helmet-shaped forehead, a long, sloping jawline, liquid blue eyes, and an afterglow of masculine beauty that filled out and crystallized with age. He also conducted himself with such natural deference that every gesture seemed informed by a graciousness and decency beyond him." Unquote. In 1955, at the age of 29, Martin took over a minor division of EMI called Parlophone Records and was tasked with breathing some commercial life into it. According to an unnamed musician familiar with the Parlophone label, quote, 
It was the bastard child of the English recording industry, kept locked away in the clock tower and treated with disdain." Unquote. The vast majority of A&R, that's artist and repertoire, people like Martin, would have examined the competition and come up with an underserved musical niche or two and run with it. Instead, he did the completely unexpected. He saw a niche that no one at the time perceived as a niche, comedy records. Along with the classical and orchestral pops music Parlophone was already recording, Martin began making comedy records that were gigantically popular with the English public. Martin's comedy albums struck gold, but it was his recordings of the great English comic Peter Sellers that struck rhodium and put Parlophone on the international record company map. According to George Martin's assistant, Ron Richards, quote, we had gone from being known as a sad little company to making a mint of money, unquote. But for Martin, making comedy albums was not enough. He himself was a musician, and he wanted for Parlophone the sort of industry respect that could only come with recording cutting-edge music. So he put out the word. Parlophone was casting about for a legitimate pop act. In early February of 1962, Martin got a call from Sid Coleman, the general manager of the London-based music publishing house of Ardmore and Beechwood. Coleman had heard what he called a promising group though he also told Martin that the group, called The Beatles, had, quote, been completely rejected by everybody, absolutely everybody in the country, unquote, including Parlophone's parent company, EMI. Nevertheless, would George Martin like to meet their manager? Sure, why not? Martin booked a meeting for February 13, 1962, with the group's manager, Brian Epstein, 1934 to 1967. George Martin listened to the Beatles audition tape that Brian Epstein played for him. His first reaction, he found them to be, quote, a rather unpromising group, very mediocre, unquote. But, but there was something about Paul McCartney's and John Lennon's voices that made him sit up and listen. He told Brian Epstein, quote, You know, I really can't judge it on what you're playing me here. It's interesting, but I can't offer you any kind of deal on this basis. I must see them and meet them. Bring them down here to London, and I'll work with them in the studio, unquote. That audition took place in the cavernous Studio 3 at EMI's Abbey Road Studio Complex in London on June 6, 1962. The boys in the band, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, George Harrison, and drummer Pete Best, Ringo Starr slash Richard Starkey, would formally replace Best 10 weeks later on August 18, 1962, were all natives of Liverpool and they resented 
having to schlep down to a London audition for a company, EMI, that had already rejected them. But George Martin's Parlophone subsidiary had not yet rejected them. So schlep and audition they did. By the end of the day, the Beatles had recorded four songs. Three were originals, co-credited to Lennon and McCartney. Please Please Me, Ask Me Why, and Love Me Do. The fourth song was the Latin standard, Besame Mucho, Kiss Me Much. The recording engineer, Norman Smith, 1923 to 2008, didn't think much of what he heard. Quote, they didn't impress me at all, unquote. Listening to the tape in the control room while the band stood by, George Martin was even less impressed. In particular, he found fault with the three originals. Quote, they were rotten composers. Their own stuff wasn't any good, unquote. After having listened to the playback, George Martin and the recording engineer Norman Smith sat the Beatles down and lowered the boom. They were merciless in their critique and laid into them for what was said to have been a full hour. The boys, and they were still boys. At the time, Paul was 19, John was 21, George was 19, and Pete Best was 20, were stunned and crestfallen. Writes Bob Spitz, quote, when the final blow had been delivered, there was a long, anxious silence. Almost apologetically, Martin asked the Beatles if there was anything they didn't like. After a well-timed beat, George Harrison sneered, I don't like your tie. The room went silent. For a split second, nobody breathed. A line had been crossed. Martin fixed George with a stern look, not certain what tack to take with this boy, when he noticed the flicker of a smile at the corner of George Harrison's mouth. A joke! He'd been making a joke! What a perfect icebreaker! Martin's grin flashed approval from ear to ear, unquote. The engineer, Norman Smith, recalled the moment, quote, that was the turning point, unquote. Well, how about that? Paul, John, and George, Pete Best, never said a word, went into what came to be known as Beatle mode, cutting up on George Martin and Norman Smith, showering them with puns and wordplay. Again, Norman Smith recalled, quote, during that one conversation, we realized they were something special, unquote. Bob Spitz completes the scene, quote, it was exhilarating stuff. The three of them worked off one another like comic prose. Martin and Smith laughed so hard that tears soaked the inside collars of their shirts. We've got to sign them for their wit, Smith told Martin after the band had packed up. Martin promised to think about it, but he'd already made up his mind. The Beatles were a go." Unquote. 
Tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post will pick up from here and will observe how and why George Martin justly came to be known as the fifth Beatle. Until then, thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.